Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. How are you guys? And what's up? Um, growing up, I had a little ritual with my dad. Um, I would go down to the basement and there would be this box, this cardboard box. It was like this big, about this high, and it was full of Marvel comic books. And every night I would go down there and I would just gaze on this wonderful box. And I would pick Spider-Man, Avengers, Captain America, Fantastic Four, whatever it is. And then I'd sprint back upstairs and I'd say, Dad, this is the story that I want to read tonight. And my dad would read it to me. And sure enough, at the end of those 30 pages, good had conquered evil, right? But it, it started an obsession in me. You know, I, I then was taking every single dollar that I could muster to go to my local comic book shop, Grand Slam Comics here in town, to spend all my money on reading stories of good versus evil. And I loved doing it. And then movies started coming out and my dad, made a, my dad and I made a habit out of going to those, those movies together to go and see our heroes on the big screen. And most of them sucked. Yeah, if I'm totally honest. Uh, in those early years, it was rough. Um, and then 2008 happened, Iron Man, right? The start of the MCU. And going into that movie, the buzz was crazy. It was something like, oh my gosh, they've finally done it. They've made a good Marvel film. And it was great, but the best part came at the very, very end. When Nick Fury is in Tony Stark's house and he turns over and says, hey, you're, you're part of a bigger universe. We want to talk to you about something called the Avenger Initiative. And every single comic book nerd around the world was just thrust into a state of euphoria with that sentence. <laughs> I kid you not. All right? And then four years later, in 2012, May, I remember going with one of my best friends at the time. His name was Michael. We went to a midnight premiere of The Avengers. And guys, I can tell you the excitement was palpable in that room, okay? Bunch of just like older guys who had been reading comic books their whole life, just so excited to see what was going to happen on this screen. And it was incredible. If you've seen the movie, the movie did not disappoint. It delivered on all facets of what you would hope for. And there's this part where they do like this panning shot, right? They do like this circular shot, right? And you, you've got the whole Avengers team. And it's what you've been waiting for the entire time. You knew going into this movie that of course they're gonna be a team. Of course they're gonna conquer evil. But you didn't know for sure, right? You had to wait until you saw the little cool pan shot. And that's when everyone went ballistic. I thought the roof of the Metrolux 14 was gonna come off, right? And we as people, we love stories of good versus evil. They're timeless. We are still caught up in a time, a, a story of good versus evil. And we're going to talk about that today in this sermon. My name is Taylor Mickelson. If I've never met you before, I'm the next-gen pastor here. I get to hang out with the students, get to run around with them. I have lots of energy, as you can tell. Um, I love hanging out with students. And no, Caden and I did not plan this. All right, I know Caden was wearing all black. I didn't know that's what he was going to do, but here we are. We just look very similar. Um, Austin, last week, started our series in the letters of John. And if you missed that, that, that week last week, go back, watch it, because I'm just building directly after where he ended. So if my nerddom 
hadn't yet come into focus for you, I'm really going to bring it into focus for you in this moment, okay? I actually went to school to be an English teacher. I spent five years, yes, five years, just reading books, analyzing them, and then reanalyzing them again to figure out what the author actually meant by writing these books. I loved actually just looking for the secrets that the author was hiding in their words. Um, I, I can remember my, my professor, my favorite professor, he would give us a book that we had to read in a week, and then that following Monday, he would give us an assignment on it. And I remember showing up the very first time that we had done it, and he said, hey, you guys read the entire book, now go back to the first page and look at the first sentence. You have those 11 words to explain the entire book. Go. And I loved it. It was so fun every single time that we did it. It never got old. I love just breaking sentences apart and trying to figure out what the author meant. And Sarah and I, we read at night sometimes. And lately, I've just been sitting there in bed cackling to myself as I read Herman Melville's Moby Dick because nobody writes like him anymore. Nobody constructs a sentence like that guy did. And guess what? The Bible is 10 times better than any of the novels that I have ever read. I'm going to spend the rest of my life nerding out about all the wonderful intricacies of God's word. And so today, church, I am going to invite you in to be a bit nerdy with me, okay? I'm gonna invite you in to go deep today because I can't wait to show you some of just the crazy stuff that goes on in God's word. And so I wanna start with John. John, he's the guy who wrote these letters. He was Jesus's best friend, self-proclaimed. And he has a very unique writing style. Austin kind of mentioned it last week, this unique writing style that he has, how it differs from some of the other authors in the Bible. But I wanna double click on that real quick. And I wanna look at a specific part of his writing style. And it's what he creates in his writing, which is a dualistic worldview. So what do I mean by dualistic? I mean, there's good and evil, right? There's love and there's hate. There's truth and there's lies. Oftentimes, John is, he is comparing some polar opposite things to draw you into the narrative or into what he's telling you about. So let's look at some of the famous things that John has written before we get to our letter today. So in the gospel of John, his account of Jesus's life, John 3, 16 through 21, it should be up on the screen. This is what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is Jesus speaking, right? But John's gospel is the only one who really records this, this way that Jesus says this. And in this verse, we see some of this trademark dualism that he's talking about here. Just in this verse alone, we have light and dark. We have good and evil. We have saved and not saved. Let's look at 
John, John 1, 1 through 4, another very famous um, writing from John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can see it in this passage, too. You've got created and not created. You have light and dark again. So let's read our passage of Scripture for today and keep John's dualism in mind. I want you to pay attention to what he is doing. He is drawing a comparison for us when he gives us this scripture for today. So 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So now that I've told you about John's dualism, it's kind of hard not to see, right? Every time you read John, you're going to be looking for it. He does it constantly. In these five verses, I know it's six up there right now, but in the five verses that I'm tackling today, John does a lot of work. And it's a very helpful thing for us to look through no matter what stage of your walk that you are in. So church, are you ready? All right. In the infamous words of one Russell Wilson, let's ride. <laughs> in this time, we know that the church was facing some false teachings. John actually writes these, this section, this walking in the light section in your Bible, to his people to specifically help them out with how do you tell who's walking in darkness and who's walking in light? What are some tangible, practical things that we can look at that people might say or do that can help us determine whether or not they're walking in light or walking in darkness? And you guys have probably heard of a compliment sandwich. Yes, yes, maybe. When you're giving someone feedback, you give them a compliment sandwich, right? You say, hey, you do this really well. And then you follow up with some harder stuff, which is, hey, well, you kind of suck at this. We need you to get better at this. And then you end the conversation with a nice little pat on the rump and say, hey, you do this really well. Nice job today. Can't wait to see you tomorrow. But John just really doesn't prescribe to that method here in these five verses, okay? He, he gives what I like to call a club conviction sandwich. I don't know if you guys have had a club sandwich before, right? It's where you get bread, and then you got some good stuff, and then you got bread, and then you got some good stuff, and then you have more bread. Well, that's exactly what these five verses are. And these bread verses in the ESV, they all begin with this phrase, which is very curious. If we say... These are meant to be these practical tests. That's how we know it's a practical test, is if we say. Is, and John is pointing to his people that if you hear people saying this, these are people who are walking in darkness. And the two positive phrases start like this. But if we walk and if we confess. Man, there's a whole sermon here that I could talk about, but I'm gonna settle for this. I want you to notice... The negative phrases 
They all point to lip service. But the positive phrases point to action. We confess. We walk. We are called to be doers of the word, church, not just sayers of it. So today's sermon in one sentence is this. There's going to be three tests that John gives us that apply to us because, believe it or not, we can actually fall into some of these things. And then there's two promises that I'm going to end with that, that God uses to encourage us. We even sang about some of them this morning, which I'll get to in a, in a second. So test number one, it's the denial of fellowship. And we're going to look at 1 John, just the verse 6 right here. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we see people who say that they have fellowship with God, but truly they walk in darkness. And John is getting at the actions of a person. He knows if you truly believe in something, actions will follow you. Like, like it says in James, faith without works is dead. A true response out of what God has done in your life is to have some fruit, to do something about it. But then in verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So in verse 7, we see that a true mark of faith is to have fellowship with one another. And verse 6 is broad in its application of sin, right? It's saying, hey, if you just, you don't walk with him, you walk in darkness. But then verse 7 is immediately attached to it, and it talks about fellowship with other brothers. And so scholars believe that verse 7 is actually talking about the people in verse 6 are people who don't have fellowship with brothers, and they think it's not a sin. They think that they can have fellowship with God without having fellowship with other Christians, Community with believers is essential. Research around people who struggle with addiction have, have shown some really interesting things about community and the importance of it. They found that people who have an addiction, the opposite isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is actually connection. It's community. It's why AA meetings are literally set up the way that they are. They're set up so that people can connect with other people to strengthen their resolve in their addiction so that they have people that are actually connected with them to help them beat this thing. And nothing drives me more crazy than when a student tells me about our small group time not being very good because we don't talk about anything real. <sighs> it's like... Hey, hypothetical student, hypothetical student, did you try being vulnerable? Did you actually seek community? What did you do to try and create some community with the people in your small group? Because the results of people who are willing to share and be vulnerable are truly staggering. Take this series that we're in right now. In high school, we're talking about Christian sexuality. For the last seven weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to live a life of sexual integrity that follows God's plan for our life. And the first five weeks were good. Small group time was good, I would say. I, I would say it was good. But then something happened two weeks ago where a young man in a small group that I lead took a risk. He shared something private 
something raw, something difficult, a struggle that was very real for him. And there was two things, and I could feel it in that moment. There was two things that could happen. Everyone else in that group, they could have just shrugged it off, been like, oh yeah, that's awkward, dude. I've never done anything like that. And stared off weirdly, right? (laughs) Or they could have reciprocated some vulnerability and shared to show that this, this kid's not alone. And I was sitting there just pins and needles like, please, 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 please. Come on, guys, you can do this. And I am so, so relieved to report that these kids shared. It was like watching dominoes fall down. Walls were coming down. Kids were sharing about their struggles. They were coming alongside one another in a way that I can only describe being Christ-like. It was incredible to see what community was doing for these young men. And it's amazing. And we need it. We are designed for community. Christians need Christian community. We cannot settle for surface level conversations because the darkness of the world will swallow us. Be the level of conversation that you want to be in a small group. There's no vulnerability in your small group? Then be vulnerable. If you're not in a small group, get into a small group. If there's no small groups, make one. It's so important. We have a house info kiosk that you can go check out right after this service. If you're not in a small group, go get in one or start one. doesn't matter to me. Those people you say hi to, you could totally get in one with them. And if someone says that they don't need Christian community, I'm not saying this. John is saying this. They walk in darkness. People who have fellowship with brothers in the faith, they walk in the light. And if you don't have Christian friends, get some. It is so, so important. We will do everything we can here at the church to help equip you to be with other people who are on this walk with you. So that's test number one. Test number two is the denial of sinful nature. Verse eight says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, This verse is super, super important, church family. For all Christians, this happened to us at some point in time in your life, whether it was decades ago, weeks ago, maybe even yesterday. But at some point, you were bit bopping around just in your flesh. Everything was good. Everything was jolly. And then someone shared the good news with you. God got a hold of your heart. Someone revealed to you that there is abundant life, that the life that you are living isn't actually that great. And as we see in verse five at the very top that I read, God is light. Therefore in him, there is no darkness at all. I have this little prophecy I'm going to share with you guys. Okay. At some point in the next couple of weeks, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be enjoying the pleasures of indoor seating somewhere You're going to enjoy AC. You're going to enjoy artificial lighting. And then at some point, the time is going to come that you have to leave that place, whether it's work, whether it's at home, whether it's school, doesn't matter, whatever it is. And you're going to open the door, and this is what's going to happen. Oh, my gosh. 
oh, it's so bright, the sun, oh my gosh. That's what's gonna happen to you. And for a moment, you're gonna be so dazed and confused, it's gonna be hard to get your bearings. But then like a fog clearing, suddenly your body acclimates, your eyes adjust, and you can once again see the road that you're on. And new believers, those of you that are new believers in this room, you're still new to your faith. And those of us who have been sharing our faith, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that's everybody here, okay? Um, You go through this phase. There's a disorienting phase when you first decide to step into that magnificent light of God's love for you. You took a conscious decision, which was artificial light of sin, and you decided to step out into his magnificent light. And there's something that happens for everyone who makes that decision. You realize there's a lot of blemishes in your life. And there's some pain in realizing you have blemishes in your life because it can feel like God is stripping all of the things out of your life that you used to take joy in. It feels like God is telling you, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. And it can be painful and it can be really hard. And the, the really the big struggle for new believers or people who have just come to the faith in this phase is that you can believe the lie that when I said yes to Jesus, nothing, nothing was supposed to change. But the truth is that because you said yes to Jesus, everything changes. And that means he's gonna deal with the sin in your life. And yes, it can be painful, And as we walk alongside new believers, it's our job to remind them, to encourage them that he is trustworthy, that he has plans for you that are much better than what you ever thought for your life. And then eventually you're gonna move from this new new phase, this really disorienting phase, and you're gonna become seasoned. Your eyes and your body, they've acclimated to his glorious light. And then something dangerous can happen a false doctrine could creep into your hearts. That because we walk in the light, we no longer have the ability to sin. And this, this is who John is warning the church about in this verse eight. People who are spiritually minded, sincere Christians, they want to look more and more like Jesus, but they have convinced themselves and believe that they have been lifted above sin and temptation in their life. Now, church, this is different than walking in the victorious life that Paul promises in Romans 6, which I have up here on on the screen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you have once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about what John is talking about here in verse eight. They believe they have no sin. They believe that they have changed their nature. And this is where things get really exciting. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so St. Augustine, Does anyone know who St. Augustine is? He's a very famous theologian from a long, long time ago. And he has this doctrine called the doctrine of the bondage of will. Now, if you had that on your sermon bingo card this morning, raise your hand. (laughs) Nah, nah, I didn't either until 
about a week and a half ago when the Lord really lit the phrase upon my mind. A couple, couple years ago, I was taking a class with Pastor Kent and this was one of the things that we went through. And I remembered a phrase. The phrase is in Latin. So bear with me, but this is where the super nerdiness is gonna come out. And you guys are gonna learn some Latin today and it's really cool and it's important. And the phrase was this, non posse, non pecare. And it means not able not to sin. So this is the fallen state of man after the garden with Adam and Eve. And Augustine's doctrine, doctrine breaks down like this. We have the first phase which is passe pecare et passe non pecare. This means in the garden, Adam and Eve were able to sin and able not to sin. But what they do? Yeah, they chose to sin. The fall happens, which leads to phase two, which is where we are right now. Non passe, non pecare. Not able not to sin. This is where we currently live right now. But there are two more phases of man, according to Augustine. So we're going to look at those real quick. Number three is passe non pecare, able not to sin. This is Jesus post-resurrection, but pre-ascension when he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. All right? And then number four is non passe pecare, unable to sin. That is our future. That is our eternity in heaven unable to sin, unable to be separated from God. Glorious. Now, if you just checked out for that Latin section we just had, that's okay. Come on back. Come on back. Because the crux of this conversation is not about phase three and four. That's our future. That's something to be excited about. But there is something to be learned about phases one and two. The first state of man is so, so important. Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin, and yet they chose to sin, forever changing mankind afterwards. Placing, in the, in the, placing us in this state that King David acknowledges in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And at the time of John's writing, there are people claiming that they walk in the light with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they are able not to sin anymore. But that just isn't what we see in scripture. John says we're delusional, that we are lying to ourselves if we say this, if we say that we have no sin. And because of what Adam did in the garden, mankind lost its ability not to sin. We are left with non passe, non pecare, not able not to sin. Paul puts it like this in Romans 7, 14 through 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the battle that we wage against ourselves in this life. I have the knowledge in my head. I know that I want to do something. And yet sometimes my flesh still wins out. 
As Paul, John, and David said, church, we have a proclivity towards sin that is within us. It sounds like we're doomed at this point. But that's where Jesus, the last Adam, as he is called sometimes, steps in for us. And his name is so cool because of what we just learned. The last Adam is the name for Jesus that, ha- that harkens all the way back to Genesis 3. Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise that God said in Genesis 3 that he would send a man to do what Adam and Eve could not in the garden. Jesus, being fully divine and fully man, had the ability not to sin. He is the last Adam. Jesus represents a reversal of man's nature at this point to set things right. God sends one last man with passe pecare et pesse not pecare. Able to sin, able not to sin. And if Jesus cannot accomplish what God has set before him, then, there, then there's no hope for us. But in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Jesus completes the task at hand. It's finished on the cross. And because of that, the last Adam, we are saved from a life without God. We have an invitation back into the garden. Incredible. And to say that we have achieved the ability not to sin, then we strip ourselves of the need of Jesus on our behalf. Simply put, it's not our ability, church, that saves us. It's what Jesus has done on our behalf. The perfect savior. We're all just sinners in need of a perfect savior. We have to humble ourselves and confess that we need Jesus and his cleansing blood. Heaven has not yet come to earth. I mean, Lazarus died again, something we don't often think about, but it's a reminder that even though Jesus's work was finished on the cross, we are between his two arrivals. Where right now we walk by faith, but in eternity we walk by sight. Test number three. This is the denial of sinful actions. In verse 10, we see, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, I love this verse because this is like a subtle ninja Christ-like move that John pulls with this verse in this like club conviction sandwich we find ourselves in. And at first glance, it might seem that John is repeating himself here. But what he's doing is actually expounding on what he's asking of, you, of, asking of us. Which in the first one, he's asking you need to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in the faith. In, in the faith, faith. And then the second is that you need to acknowledge your sinful nature. But then this third thing that he asks us to do is this. Acknowledge your sinful actions. Call sin what it is. It's sin. Call a red car what it is. It's a red car. We live in a time and a place where it's really sexy to repackage our sin into something else. For example, adultery. Let's just take adultery, light one. I'm just finally admitting that my needs aren't being met in my marriage anymore. Or selfishness. We don't call selfishness selfishness anymore. It's self-care. Because if nobody looks out for me, no one will. 
Or let's take pride. We don't call pride pride anymore. I'm just pointing out my unique contributions to the world on every single platform that I have. (laughs) Calling sin, sin is so, so important. And it's essential and being able to kill the self. And I mean the self that we conjure within our mind that says, I do no wrong. I'm the best. I walk around just thinking, I am awesome. That's what the self in your head is telling you. But as we confess our sins, we are putting to death what is earthly in us. I'm reminded of this stunning quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer about what it truly means to be a disciple of Christ. He says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the call of a Christian. He bids us come and die. Lay down what is earthly in you. Humble yourself at the feet of Jesus. Admit that it is not what you do, but it is what he did that gives you access to the righteousness that is for us. We have been, we have to be continually calling out sin in our lives, church. And that's what verse 10 is all about. But I said there was gonna be two promises and I was kind of ninja-like too. We went out of order in verses, right? So we're going back to verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is God's plan for us. And it starts with confession. Confession is an admittance of guilt. It's me humbling myself before God. And this comes out of the response of God's light revealing what is wrong in me. And when I confess it and, and say, I fall short of the glory of God, that does help. I mean, that does, that satisfies that, yep, I went away from the fellowship of God. And yep, I do have a sinful nature, but it hangs just short of admitting my sinful actions. We have to be specific. You do. You have to be specific. You're sharing with God. Yes, he already knows, but he wants to hear you come to him. He wants to hear you say, hey, I have been struggling with anger in my marriage. Hey, I have been struggling with temptation around X, Y, Z. Lord, help me. Give me the Holy Spirit that I might be able to say no to that. And this leads to some promises. So promise number one that I love in this verse, God is faithful and just. So we declared this promise this morning. As a church family, when we sang same God, he is the same God of Moses and of Jacob and of David and of Mary. We can see the faithfulness of God all over the lives of the people in the Bible. And he promises to be the same God to us that he was to them, faithful to the end. And then we know that God is just. We know that he is perfectly just. God promises to give to each person their due in him in revelation. It reminds me of what Katie said a couple of weeks ago, where we know there are two different kinds of people. There are two different places that they're going. And eventually it's too late. We can trust him and his plan for us. And then there's promise number two in this verse. 
that he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Living in God, living in his magnificent light can sometimes be or feel like a burden. And I think that's a lie that we tell ourselves at times. And the great human surprise is this, that although God's light reveals our sin, he did not abandon us to walk this road alone. The Holy Spirit is there walking with you, guiding with you on a road paved by the obedience of Christ. He literally wraps us in his robes of righteousness, cleansing us from our unrighteousness when we come to him. The backwards look at the forgiveness of our past points to this forward look of holiness, which is our pursuit. And it's all thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The invitation of this, this verse is, of these five verses is simple and yet profound. John is saying, come, step into the road of light. Give him all your brokenness. Give him all the sin in your life. For Jesus will meet you, he'll wrap you up. Confess the brokenness, receive the forgiveness and righteousness credited to you by Jesus' work on the cross. We're gonna move into a time of communion. I can't think of a better time to take stock of our relationship with the Lord. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess and offer up to the Lord and be specific? Maybe you've never been specific in confessing. Maybe you've just done the, Lord, I know I fall short of the glory of God. And that is good. But it falls short of creating the fellowship with him where he can deal radically with the sin in your life. So take this opportunity, take communion on your own, at your own pace, and then I'll come back up and close us in prayer. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, um, I was struck by just the simple and yet profound realization that it was, it was your body. It was your blood. I had nothing to do with it. You paid it all for me. Lord, I pray that we would just come before you and be reminded of that simple fact. That it was your body, your blood, and we did nothing. There's comfort in that. That it rests on you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity we had to gather. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.